Good afternoon, all. Welcome to Coffee with Jim, podcasts with influential healthcare leaders. What a great privilege and honor it is to have with us today an incredibly accomplished cardiology leader, Dr. Robert Hendel, who is also professor of medicine and radiology. He's got many years of medical leadership at Tulane and other organizations he'll tell you about, as well as he was formerly the president of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology and also many years of leadership uh, within the ACC, American College of Cardiology. And if I understand today, Bob, we want to hear more about a master of ACC. So first, welcome. And second, congratulations. Thank you. I wasn't aware you knew that, but uh, I'm very honored. I found out uh, the other day that I was designated a, a master of the American College of Cardiology, which um, is something that I'm really flattered and humbled and honored by because it's really sort of reserved for the elite leaders of the ACC. And I think the leaders of the ACC really reflect on the cardiology community across the world. So it's a very elite club. It's a little bit overwhelming. Well, you're part of the club, so congratulations. And again, it's been great to work with you the last couple of years, Bob. I think we first met, again, way back at the ACC when you were on the board there. Kind of maybe before we get into our discussion today, uh, whose title is The Evolution of Transitions, maybe you want to say a little bit of your role at that time, kind of when we first met and the circumstances? I had been involved in the national organization, which is basically sort of the, the college of cardiologists and, and uh, related fields. There's about 56,000 members. And I started in on a couple of committees that had interest, not with a goal of anything, but I just enjoyed the work. Um, some of the work was very timely and people started to notice that I was doing it and I sort of became the czar of something called appropriate use of how we use our technologies. I then applied to serve in a higher level to be on the board of trustees, which at the time is 31 representatives within the college that work and have the fiduciary responsibility of the organization. When I joined, it wasn't immediate. Uh, I had to apply three times. I was turned down. And uh, I think the, the second time I was turned down, I was pretty upset and saying, I'm not going to do this again. But I got cajoled into it and was put on the board the third time around, was completely humiliated and humbled by my surroundings. It was overwhelming when I first joined the board. And then over the last few years, uh, we went through a process where the board sort of changed. And I think, Jim, we can talk about that because you were instrumental in a lot of those changes where we downsized our board of trustees, again, the governing body, basically, to uh, 13 individuals from 31. So basically, we had to sort of vote ourselves off the reg reservation. And somehow I managed to hang on there for a little while. Uh, it was a great, great, great honor to serve. And, you know, I had separation anxiety at the end of my second term there. So that was six years. But it was just a thrill and an honor. Um, I never sought higher levels of office. I had no desire to be an officer just because I didn't think I was the right character for that. I, I thought my role was better suited as a hardworking trustee or a board of directors member. You know, I've had ups and downs. I get disappointed sometimes with not having some opportunities even now, but then something like this MACC honor, which came out this week, and I'm just flabbergasted and thrilled. But I have to say, I've always gotten a lot more out of the organization than I've given, and it's been a great pleasure, not only for the organization, but I think, and I'm sure we're going to touch on it today, is a lot of lessons learned that are applicable to not only my other professional life, like my day job, but also my home life. 
and my personal life because it really has taught me, I think, how to be a better person, how to be a better leader, how to be a more influential person without being controversial or adversarial. And uh, I think that's something that the ACC and advisors like Jim McKenna have, have taught us to do. Well, thanks for that last bit, Bob. We'll pretend it's true. <laughs> but again, three times a charm. Congrats to you again for your perseverance. And so thanks for being willing to be candid. We are going to touch on some personal things. In fact, let's do a few rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. How about, so you live in Louisiana, in fact, in New Orleans. Favorite restaurant? Uh, Gotro's. It's a small sort of local area in Uptown. Uh, very quiet, not, not a lot of noise, hardly ever written about, but just great classic New Orleans cuisine in a very dignified environment. There's no sign out front. It looks like a house. It's great. Wow. I didn't know about that. I'll have to try that one next time. And we also know that New Orleans food is incredibly delicious, maybe not so heart healthy, but you stay trim and let's shift gears to how about lots of sports teams in uh, New Orleans. Any favorites? Uh, well, the Saints, of course. The New Orleans Saints are not only New Orleans favorites, but I think a lot of the country, uh, a lot of disappointing years. Uh, this year was not terribly surprising, but, you know, we love the team. Uh, the, the city and the team are one. It's not like there's other competitors or you're rooting for this or that. And I got to say, like, even the basketball team, the Pelicans, doesn't generate the kind of excitement. New Orleans is a small city. You know, we're, we're out well under a million people, and yet we uh, have this bond, and that stadium is sold out every single game, and it has been for the last 15 or 20 years. So it's hard to not talk about the Saints. That's amazing that you do mention it's a relatively small city. When you think of New Orleans, you just think of so much color and cuisine and culture. And let's shift then to, since we're talking about the evolution of transitions, one personal one, if I may, you and your wife, Judy, have recently recovered from COVID. Obviously, that's impacted just about everybody on the planet. I'm glad, first of all, you're both healthy again. A couple of questions. First, many people said COVID was a hoax, as bad as the flu. I would love to hear your experience and or should people fear COVID? It's not a hoax and they should fear it. It's a terrifying disease. I have to say on a personal level, I've been taking care of COVID patients. Uh, New Orleans was hit particularly hard, especially in March. Uh, we think Mardi Gras was one of those wonderful super spreader events. Our hospitals were overrun. We were one of the first places to really outstrip every ICU bed. And it was horrible walking down the hallways and I was working in the hospital every day for about six weeks. Just the overwhelming disease and sickness and the fact that every corner of the hospital is jammed and hospital workers are getting fatigued and we're wondering about adequate supplies every day. And, and the stress involved was terrible. And then there's always the fear that it you know, going to get you. And then there's also because, you know, we're healthcare workers, we say, oh, no, it can never get me. I'm not going to get sick. I'm going to either take precautions or I'm just a superior physiology. It's not going to happen. Well, I watched a colleague of mine get incredibly sick after encountering a homeless person. He got COVID. He was on a ventilator for two weeks and he subsequently recovered. But watching him and also seeing the patients, it's no hoax. It's absolutely terrifying. And when I was diagnosed um, on January 2nd, my wife and I looked at each other and went, well, I guess our wills are together. 
what are we going to tell the kids? I'm considered a high-risk individual, so I was really thinking, oh my gosh, this really could be the end. And again, I've seen enough patients, and you know, you read about the 35-year-old and the 41-year-olds that don't make it, and I'm much, much sick older than they are. So it's very terrifying. And I, I think people should wear masks and two or three masks and keep distance and have a healthy respect. And above all else, I say nothing else today. Get vaccinated, period. Everyone. Amen to that. Since we're talking about transitions, you're recovering. How does one transition back to good health? Well, specific to COVID-19 and the pandemic, I mean, yeah, there's a transition that I've experienced of getting sick, surviving, re-entering. But in addition to the sickness and the, the real stress that was sort of subliminal, but eventually, you know, passes because you survived, I think is the residual effects of what the pandemic has done. You know, we've essentially changed our lives. The last year has been unamazing without any precedent on, on how devastating it has been. Something I think we've talked about in the past, Jim, which is, yeah, okay, we don't travel. We don't go to restaurants. We're certainly not going to music clubs and venues. Um, but there's something good that has come out. I think all of us have started to appreciate that we can have meaningful telephone or Zoom calls and reconnect with people maybe we haven't spoken to in a while, or recognizing that maybe the person that you're spending time with, whether it be a family member or significant other, there's not distractions. I mean, you're not racing out to go to a movie or something. It changes the dynamic. I think there is something good that comes out of this. I'd like to think that there's you know, a, a silver lining to this very dark cloud. And I think a lot of people have become a little better, a little more understanding. Yeah, we're frustrated. Yeah, we're bored. Yeah, we're angry about we have to do this. I don't want to do this anymore. And I hear it nowadays, you know, the local residents, they want to go out and party. This is what New Orleanians do. And yet we are stuck. I'm struck by the fact that the residents of this town are okay. They're not screaming about it. The tourists are, but the <laughs> residents sort of get it. I'm very proud of that. And I, I, I've noticed that among people I've spoken to that people say, well, yeah, it's like Groundhog Day. It just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. And oh my gosh, you know, same thing. On the other hand, the year has gone by very quickly. That's not bad. Something is positive about this experience. I think. And we'll build on that. In fact, I'll backtrack to your comments about the ACC and when we met on the board of trustees. And at that time, during your term on the board, you were, we were, we were talking about topics like governance changes, right? Addressing diversity, handling healthy conflict at the board level, and even managing through a globally competitive CV landscape. One could argue that the ACC was in a transition then. What makes this topic, the evolution of transitions, important now? Maybe it's a little bit of a, the Department of Redundancy Department. A transition is an evolution. But a transition doesn't simply occur. And when we talked about a title, I think, first of all, you have to embrace the fact that you are going through a transition. First, there's a recognition that there is a change occurring. And at the ACC level, we're suddenly, you know, we've done a deep dive, we've analyzed the governance structure, but now we've got to implement it. And that is sudden. And even if you've prepared for the change, it's still sudden. And it's a rather abrupt ending to what was. And have you mourned the loss? or given up the old way of doing things. And now the transition of trying to figure out where is this now? It's imperfect, it's sloppy, it's messy. And I think any transition, whether it be for an organization or a company or an individual, 
that intermediate period, it's been called uh, by William Bridges and others, uh, the neutral zone or the gray zone, I think by definition is sloppy. It's, it, it, we'd like it to be neat. We're all very organized leaders and we like to have it that way. But until you go through that process, how do you start over? How do you start the new beginning? until you have gone through that. And that's something, quite honestly, I did not appreciate in, the, in my personal transformations that I've gone through, especially recently. But I also think the board didn't quite get it either when we downsized substantially. Um, you don't just turn the switch and say, okay, we've gone from 31 to 13 trustees, everything's fine. Well, what happens is the dynamics of the individuals are different. We're meeting much more often. There's no texting and checking emails during the meetings anymore because you're very visible and you better do your homework. I think, again, that is an iterative process. It took a number of years to even get to where I would say we're at the new beginning. Not that it's finished. I don't think we ever finish. I do think, you know, organizations go through the same process as individuals, and it is an evolution. And some would say continued, just like evolution is continuous. I think that's true, but I think we probably have peaks and valleys of ups and downs of different transitions, not necessarily a force and say, okay, today is the day I'm turning the switch and that's the way it is and everything is done now. Uh, I don't think that's possible personally or professionally. Well, that's a fascinating set of examples. And I'll borrow one, like the transition from 31 members to 13. That's significant. We are in a moment of change and a moment of transition. It's not always that cut and dry, right, Bob? So how does one know when one is in a transition? You know, and maybe you are in one and you don't realize it. Key events like, again, like that one or a new job or, or baby, those are defined, but others can be more nebulous. What's your reaction? You know, I think life is a transition. I mean, every day is adding to it. You're right. Some are more dramatic and more abrupt. Some, I think when you have input into that change, let's say you uh, take on some new tasks at work, or maybe you have a, a, you move your office. Well, there are things that accompany that, that we probably are not cognizant of. And then you look back and say, well, yeah, I feel a little uncomfortable or I'm not quite understanding this or I feel displaced. Yeah, you're in a transition. And I think some of the transition, as you point out, uh, job changes. Yeah, okay, it's very sudden. But even then you say, I'm just going to pick up my cardiologist or pick up my stethoscope and move downtown to another location. Well, no, it's completely different. The people, the environment and everything else. And I think sometimes we say, oh, yeah, but it's no big deal. Well, it is. I think it's taken me a lot of years to figure out that we do go through this process. I have to say some of the most abrupt transitions for me have taught me the most now, and I'm sure we'll touch in on one or two of them, but I think it's healthy to recognize transitions. And I think the fact that books are written about it, at first I was like, someone had suggested I read you know, Bridges' book and I went, well, what a stupid idea. Why do I want to read about it? I'm living it. Well, you read it, you know, I'm not getting royalties. So I got to mention that right now. But it does make a difference and it puts it in a light, not just that someone else has gone through this, but, you know, I think introspection is very important. And, you know, hopefully this podcast will let some of your viewers and listeners think about the fact that transitions are real. Yeah, great point there. Well, if you wouldn't mind, let's go deeper there, Bob. You were kind enough in the past to tell me a little bit about, you put it like this, you know, mistakes and lessons learned. What would you want to share to help the rest of us evolve wiser? Maybe you want to touch on some work-related transitions or others. Probably the 30,000 foot response is um, listen to others and listen to yourself. Take the time to allow yourself to go through the transition and get input from others. Quite honestly, Jim, you, as we mentioned, uh, you've helped me through my most recent transition, even though I didn't think 
it was worthwhile. And I told you, I didn't think I needed your help, but I did. And it made a difference. And then some of the colleagues that I have that you know very well picked up the phone or they picked up the phone and we had a conversation and I got unbelievable advice. And it also quieted the storm of what was going on to have the reflection of someone saying, hey, it's okay. Or, hey, you're an okay person. Or, you know, yeah, it's going to work out great. Or whatever it is, like a lot of that is helpful. And then take the time to listen to yourself. Because I think having those conversations with an advisor or a coach or a friend or a spouse, you hear what you say. After a while, you start to believe it. I mean, I, I can't say that just because I've had conversations, I suddenly see uh, it's an epiphany and everything is perfect. I think if you say it enough, which is sometimes not good, but it's, We've had leaders in politics say things enough and everyone starts to believe it. But I think in many cases, it is the truth and we can follow through and guide our way. But I think the internalization is very important. So even with coaches and even with advisors, you've got to do it. And I guess a transition that I've watched uh, professionally way, way, way many years ago is the transition from being a cigarette smoker to a non-cigarette smoker. Until that individual wants to stop, we can throw counseling and medicines and everything in the world and it ain't going to change or they're going to relapse or whatever else. And I think once an individual says, I am done, I am not going to do this and really believes that, then I think the transition is real. And then I think, you know, again, it's the new beginning. It takes a while, but then you establish the new framework, which is I'm not a smoker. That's a, that's a powerful image too. You know, a couple of things I would just offer to you, I think as some of the successes for you in some of your transitions, Bob, to your point, a bunch of people you know, dialed you up recently, or you can dial up a handful of other colleagues, you've developed a strong network over the years. So I don't want to diminish that fact. And a lot of people trust you. And imagine you would agree that's a big part of not only leadership, but just being okay, not only professionally, but personally. And then the second is one of your, let's say, signature strengths on the board was you're very comfortable in the contrarian role, right? <laughs> and in fact, Mike Valentine, you know, at one part during our healthy conflict, well, he would, you know, give everybody that role every once in a while. You're a cut to the chase kind of guy. I relish that role. I mean, I know it's not for everyone. And uh, I think a lot of shrinking violets were like, oh God, he's talking again, or, or he's got his hand up to make a comment and be like, oh yes, Bob. Okay. I think, you know, everyone knows, I think from boards and leadership organizations that if you have unanimity on every issue, that is not a good functioning group. That's not leadership. That's a bunch of groupthink behavior that um, I think is dangerous to the long-term success. And I relish the role of at least having a discussion. Sometimes my side won, more often it didn't, but at least it made people think. And even that role, Jim, was a transition because initially you're terrified because you're the new person on a board or in an organization. You don't want to say anything. You don't want to rock the water. And then when you do and you get a negative reaction, you're nervous about it. And then you start to believe, and maybe it's true that people really hate you or hate what you represent. And that's where I think the next stages of, I think what professional coaches have taught me is learn to know who you're talking to, get to know them better, use various instruments, whether it's be a 360 or a disc profile or other tools so that you can better relate. And I think, you know, one of the exercises that we did at the ACC board was we went through those processes and we did disc profiles and we learned about different leadership styles. And it doesn't say that one is better or the, than the other. And one individual is not better than the other. But I think once you break down those barriers and everyone knows, okay, I'm a dominant style leadership, I'm going to be in your face. 
versus someone who is very influential and introspective, conscientious leadership, and it's going to sit back and maybe is slow to make a decision, but it's going to be very thoughtful and careful. And I'm like racing to this. And between those types of approaches, there is the real value. And I think that's what I learned. And my role as a contrarian helped, I think, to push the board sometimes into saying, oh, okay, well, we better think about that, or at least understand that some of our membership is going to be very upset with this. And I think it's a good exercise. And I recently heard, I've now been off the board for a little while, and I've heard that there is a drift back to not having a contrarian and not having, you know, sort of an an alternate view. And they're actually re-implementing the mandatory uh, contrarian to make sure that it's discussed. So uh, again, you know, I, I just sort of latched onto that role without even being invited. So, <laughs> again, an observation. I think you were really good at it. You were open to this, right? The coaching, the self-assessments, the group assessments, which you know, not everybody. It's not easy for everybody to be open to that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I wasn't, Joe. I got to say, I, I'll push back on that. I don't think I was. I thought you and everyone else like you were ridiculous. I didn't think there was any purpose. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I can't understand. And okay, I've gotten to this point. What do I need someone's help for? Why do we need to have an executive coach? And I have to say, I've had in my day job here at Tulane, I've had an executive coach also. Again, it's sort of like that professional spouse that you can bounce things off of in a non-threatened way. And you get, you know, sort of another look at it. And they say, well, you know, Bob, could you have done that differently? Or do you, what do you think the impact of your comment is? And all of a sudden I go, oh yeah, okay, that was not a good approach. So I, I, I think uh, I am drinking the Kool-Aid nowadays. Um, I'm reading these leadership books and self-help books and uh, spending time with coaches. And I, I think it has made me better on all levels. Well, then at least I'll say you were willing to engage. How about that? You got it. Hey, a quick one before we begin to, to wrap up, and it is kind of a big question, but let's zoom out for a moment and get an even bigger picture on transitions. Our country right now is going through an enormous transition. Let's just focus on the public health aspect of that for 2021. What are we transitioning from and what should we be transitioning to? from a public health perspective, specifically pandemic and COVID and leadership? Okay, so uh, it's a pretty loaded question on a lot of levels. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure some of the participants and listeners to the podcast are of a, an alternative political viewpoint than perhaps I am. Uh, we certainly are going through a change from a very autocratic, very forceful, powerful leadership style uh, where I don't care what you think to someone who's really approaching it differently. And I think to deny the transition is wrong. And it didn't just occur on January 20th. It's going to go on for a long time. How how do we deal with this new thing? We we can have executive orders, but does that change the country? It's going to change some things. Does, Does it change 75 million people who voted for the alternative candidate. No. Um, How do we do that? I mean, I don't even know how that begins, but obviously there's a lot of effort. It's not just occurring in Washington. It's happening on a very local and personal levels too. I mean, you know, a lot of people have almost divorced their friendships from some people because of political viewpoints. I would opine that under no circumstances that good. I mean, I think it's good to have a contrarian in government too, but at some point need to come together. We had a philosophy at the ACC board, you know, we're going to disagree and we don't want to see everyone agree. We want healthy conflict. But at the end of the day, when a decision is made, the majority has made the decision 
and we all walk out of the boardroom united in that decision that we're not going to go backstabbing, not like what we see in Washington right now. That has to stop. I mean, you know, a decision is made. That's the law. That's what we should do. And we should get behind it and try to make it successful. So um, I, I think the country is going through a transition, just like you say. I'm more optimistic about my transitions and those of your listeners than I am about Washington. But, you know, hopefully there'll be some progress on that. How about from a public health perspective? What should we transition to? What's a healthy vision? Well, obviously, you know, my background is in science. I've been in medicine for a long time. And I'm personally, the greatest thing I think that's happened is we have a cabinet level position for science. To be anti-science and to ignore experts who have spent their lives, who have no vested interest other than the truth and the science behind the truth. How do you ignore that? And, you know, this change towards acceptance of science to help decide policies is long time coming. And we need to remove the politics from things like public health. I would say for healthcare, you know, we're a mess. And, you know, whether you are a fan of Obamacare or not, or it's rebirth now or whatever, you know, our health system is really, really broken. The only way we're going to come together is to transition into some new environment, recognizing a lot of the problems. And it can be done. I think everyone points to other countries, and I could certainly single out one or two examples. None is perfect. I would suggest that none are potentially as bad as some of the stuff we've done. You know, nowadays, when we talk about disparities, look at disparities in healthcare. It is frightening. And I live in New Orleans, 65% of the population is African-American, 50% is indigent, and they can't have access. And I can tell you when I take care of patients, getting follow-up and having them take their medicines, it seems like simple things. We can know what to do, but if you can't deliver the care, and I'm hoping that under the new administration, we can improve that because just knowing what to do is not delivering health. It's just like making a vaccine. If it doesn't get into the arm, it's not doing it. Well, Bob, we're in our final stretch. The question that we'll wrap up with is, so what makes an ideal leader? Oh, it's a really tough question. I can tell you by observation and maybe some of the things that I felt that have worked. First of all, listening, getting as much information as possible. I think then not going dormant. I think then making an opinion, offering it, listening to what comes back, potentially modifying it. I think a leader has to have some strength. I don't think a leader that simply says, well, I'll do what the masses want to do, or, you know, the overall board has said this, well, you're an individual, you've got strength in your own brain and your own convictions, listen to yourself, get get all the input, not to the point where you're sort of constraining the decision-making process or preventing the group or organization from moving forward. That to me, and that understanding is a continual transition for me because, uh, you know, I've served as chief of cardiology at two institutions and, you know, I've done some things I think well, and I've done some things quite poorly. I'd like to think each time is better. I've watched other leaders before and after me in various positions who do nothing because they don't want to take the political heat. Well, that's, that's not leadership. That's just sort of following the masses. So again, listen to yourself. get good advice, get the science behind your decision, so to speak, you know, do the best and try to recognize, uh, I think we've talked about, you asked me one time uh, what I wanted on my tombstone. Uh, I I was going through a very difficult time about four months ago. I don't think about it often, but when I see you, I think about it. Uh, My conclusion was he cared. I think if a leader says he cared and that you or she cared, and you think about care for the organization, care for the group, care for the people you work with, care for those that you're looking after. If you end up saying that is applicable, then you're a good leader. 
great wrap up thoughts there. And I'm delighted that when you see me, you think of tombstones. That's important. <laughs> Echoing your thoughts from earlier on. Thank you for not being open. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm joking. It's always a pleasure to work with you, Bob. Thanks for your wisdom and, and your insights here today. Thank you for everything. And it's a pleasure to be with you.